We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part interview. The first part was released last week in our previous episode of Encountering Silence. I mean, it's very contemplative right there is kind of an, a, a holy unknowing, you know, to pretend that you know what you should be reconciling. Uh, it'd be a lot easier to just be a little bit more apophatic and quiet and wait, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, there, there are some people who need to know what they're doing. First responders, doctors, and even they don't fully know because we're still learning about this virus and we're still learning about what it does. And so, yes, there's a place for everything. And especially for many of us, for most of us, I would even argue right now, we need to be sitting in that holy unknowing and just slowing down a bit. One of the things that we're inducing into this conversation over and over again is the Trinity which is naturally a large part of this work in your book. And I wonder how would you describe some of these things and, you know, maybe pick one thing in particular to someone who does not have a Trinitarian view um, or stance on things. And do you think that it's limiting to either be Trinitarian or to not be Trinitarian? And how do you see that as holding vastness and possibility and um, just the infinite spaciousness that that implies? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. And I think, of course, any specificity uh, implies, any, any yes to one particular path does imply a kind of no to a variety of other paths, <laughs> no matter what they are. If you're, if you're a celibate person, you're, you're saying no to a life of sexual expression. If you're a sexually active person, you're saying no to a life of celibacy. Uh, you know, there, there's always choices that we make. And, you know, in this emerging nonprofit that I'm working on, Rewilder, part of what we're doing is we're taking this really big picture look at the story of humanity and how we've moved through different epochs of time over the last hundreds of thousands of years. And, and when we take this long view, informed by archaeologists and anthropologists and, and deep ecologists, we realize that, you know, most of our religious discussions are taking place in an eye blink of geological time. And that's not to invalidate them, but it is to give them a certain healthy sense of proportion and humility. And when I look at what humans inherently practiced for most of our existence, we had this deeply spiritual worldview that sometimes uh, is called animism for shorthand, which is where we see the, um, the anima, the soul, you know, that everything is ensouled, everything, whether it's a rock or a stream or an animal or the land itself, you know, has, has this beingness to it. But interestingly, most of these paths also recognize some kind of a, a creator or originator or source. And for some of them, it's this very remote sky god that they don't really interact with much at all. And, and for others, they, they might have a more, you know, intimate 
partnership with them in these various band societies. And as we begin, you know, moving into the Fertile Crescent, as we begin developing complex agriculture around the world, religion as we know it comes more into being. And my own informed speculation on that says it's because we as humans, uh, we, we had a little trade-off that occurred. Before we had a sort of undifferentiated consciousness that we could describe as a communion consciousness. You know, the integral philosopher Ken Wilber would tell us to be careful here with what he calls a pre-trans fallacy, where we don't over-romanticize how we used to be at the expense of who we are now. But I also appreciate what C.S. Lewis says about not committing chronological snobbery, <laughs> where we assume that what we're doing today is inherently superior to what became before. So knowing all of that, an emerging consensus is that as humans, we have this innate sense of connection with the spirit and the spirit realm. We have this intimate sense of connection to place and what we now even weirdly differentiate in our language as the natural world. And we had this intimate sense of communion with each other as, as tribe. And we knew ourselves as much as it was useful to know ourselves. When we began doing complex agriculture, whether that was a cause or whether there was some mysterious co-arising, there is debate in various fields, but we seem to develop self-referential consciousness, self-reflective consciousness, where we had a heightened subjectivity at the expense of a severing a felt connection to everything around us, to, to spirit and other and world. We, were, we descended into a sense of isolated self. And you know, with the development of the plow and the development of, of farming, we began having uh, social stratification, gender stratification. You know, some people could run the heavy machinery and some couldn't whereas there used to be more of a functional parity between the sexes in, in, in immediate return foraging culture. Because maybe, yes, the men predominantly hunted, but the women were predominantly responsible for the caloric intake because gathering provided way more of the food. So there were these structural changes and these inner subjective changes that gave birth to religion as we know it, whether we call it pagan and polytheism or whether we call it monotheism. These are all basically uh, experiences of God, experiences of the divine that are filtered through an agrarian lens. So it's why sometimes I'm tickled by the, the revival of the goddess culture. I really appreciate a lot of what, uh, what especially these amazing women are going for when they're looking at these feminine archetypes, whether it's, you know, uh, Venus or Kali or whomever. But a sober analysis of the cultures that produced these, they were still overwhelmingly patriarchal cultures. And a lot of times they were these, you know, goddesses were being blood sacrificed to, uh, sometimes even human sacrificed to. And, and we also have a complex history of that within monotheism. So, you know, of course, we, we pass through sometimes what, what scholars would call henotheism. We recognize a bunch of different gods, but we say our god is the supreme god, but all these other gods really are gods. And then eventually, you know, within Judaism, there's full-on monotheism, which is basically an atheism towards all the other gods, to say that there's there's no other sacred universe besides the one god, and perhaps this god's angels, but, you know, all of this other, all these other divinities are persona non grata. So this is a very long way of responding to your question, Cassidy, but what I, what I see is that you know, we're always making our choices. And that actually, for me, the choice to be Trinitarian is actually to be the most inclusive possible 
of the many sedimentary layers of our spiritual past. That there really is a wisdom to animism, to seeing everything as full of enchantment and everything is possible to be communicated with, that everything has a certain consciousness and a certain subjectivity. And we definitely lost something with complex agriculture where we began to deny the subjectivity of the natural world so that we could subjugate the natural world. And similarly, you know, polytheism has a kind of romance to it. It has this way of recognizing the, you know, the personalities and the divinities of, of different entities, you know, whether it's the, you know, we started personifying the planet. So we began to basically, you know, take that animist impulse and project it into higher and higher gods who nonetheless seem to possess a lot of our very human foibles and, and very human tendencies of violence. You know, you look at Sumerian creation myths and, and you know, like the, the, the scattering of Tiamat and her body that creates the planets. It's just like this very gruesome thing that I think monotheism and its original impulse was something of a nonviolent um, way of countering some of these really violent polytheistic narratives. But then, of course, once we began to have the, the baton of power in our hands, we sort of returned that favor, obviously, um, of, of violence. And that monotheism without differentiation seems to be particularly totalitarian in its ability to squelch out any dissenting views. I, I don't think that the pagan community is wrong in, in issuing forth that critique of some of the unique horrors that, that monotheism is, is capable of. So what I appreciate about a Trinitarian vision is it says, yes, there is oneness. We can, we can say that the, the Hebrew Shema without crossing our fingers, you know, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But from a uh, contemplative perspective, much like a, a Jewish Kabbalist perspective, we see the one is not only referring to the one God, but it's the one reality that is infused with God this sort of sense that uh, mystics have always intuitively known that now modern day philosophers would call panentheism, where we see God as, to use biblical language, the all and in all that infuses all things. So, so for me, the Trinity is a way of saying that unity is not uniformity. Oneness is not conformity, that we, we have this energy that we name in the, our tradition, Father, Son, and Spirit, that has a, a performative and a purposeful oneness, but it doesn't squelch difference. And it actually allows me to appreciate the animus sense of, of spirit as all in all. It allows me to appreciate the polytheistic sense of that we all see different aspects of divinity. And, and there's equal amounts of, uh, of maybe juvenile projection, as well as genuine profundity and receptivity in our images of the divine. And so as, as Trinity, I can, if I plug into Trinity, what I lose is a really easy dialogue point with, say, my Jewish and my Muslim friends who are just like, y'all are just, I, you know, idolizing Jesus here. You got to, got to, got to tone that down a few notches, right? And I'm like, no, as mystics, I want to tone it up a few notches that, yes, Jesus is the son of God. And so are we. We are also the children of God. It's a, it's a very promiscuous grace. It's a easily communicable <laughs> grace that we can all be elevated into this, uh, this sense of, of divinity. While, you know, as a Christian, I, I do honor these unique aspects of Jesus as a, as a trailblazer uh, of this Christ consciousness that we all get to participate in. So I, I don't know if that uh, <laughs> adequately answers why I like to be a Trinitarian. 
Mike, lots of questions here, and I know we're running short on time. So let me just pitch two at you, and you can you can do with them what you will. The first question, you alluded to Rewilder, and so I'm just curious if you could just tell us about Rewilder and also about the relational skills work you're doing. So that's the first question. The second question really is picking up on, you know, everything that you've just said, and, and, and I really do appreciate, you know, your vision of how a Trinitarian theology can continue to be be vital and relevant even in our inner spiritual age. But but the thing that occurs to me is that I think our our, our culture and you may disagree with me and, and, and feel free to push back, but I think that there's there's an incredible cynicism in our culture, certainly a cynicism toward institutions. I think the younger you get the less invested you are in institutions, broadly speaking, of course. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I think that's tied in with a lot of anxiety about, you know, just the persistence of racism and sexism and homophobia and heteronormativity and, you know, social privilege in its many, many guises mm-hmm. and, you know, economic injustice. And then, of course, the despoiling of the environment and, and I think all of that ties in. So, so even the cynicism, it's not necessarily a nihilistic cynicism, but it's a deeply passionate cynicism that, that just feels like there's so much that's going wrong. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I guess my question to you is, where do you see the signs of hope? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in, in your work, you know, your, your cultural work, as well as your spiritual work. And maybe, you know, maybe these two questions are the same, same question, because maybe as you tell us about your, your mm-hmm. initiatives, that will tie into where you see hope. So. Yes, I, d- I do think those those two questions very much tie into each other. And, and the first question of where I find hope, say, in the future of Christian community, is that I stop uh, white-knuckling what that means. Because as someone who grew up as an evangelical, when we, we talked about the future of the faith, what we really meant was the, the future of the faith as a continuing dominant cultural force that was very important to us. And we tied it with the fulfillment of Jesus' great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. But it was very much this, well, for one, anxious thing, because we were talking about individual uh, soul harvesting for eternity <laughs> and a lot of pressure there to, uh, you know, be the instruments of, uh, you know, making sure that people weren't eternally consciously tormented in hell forever by our loving Heavenly Father. <laughs> so... Talk about that earlier Freudian stony silence of God. So, you know, but, I, but, I've, but I've come to learn that while that was our particular um, anxious evangelical version, that mainline Protestants and Catholics also have anxious versions of that. It may not be tied to fear of hellfire um, or, you know, the promotion of how many crowns you get in heaven, but there is this sense of a, uh, a, a sense of loss of Christendom as a, a dominant cultural force. And as I began to convert away from evangelicalism in my college years toward this very decentralized house church model, where we drew inspiration from the radical reformers, like the diggers and the levelers and the Anabaptists and the Quakers, I let go of that idea that for me to participate in a meaningful Christian community that would be an enduring Christian community, that it had to be a popular thing that most people were into, or even that most people understood. It was letting go of that sense that I, you know, needed this to be the main force in society. 
And I think so often being the main force in society, as Christianity has been in the West for the last, you know, however many you know, centuries, it, it becomes a, a shorthand or a proxy for our own inner life and our own sense of non-anxious presence and quiet confidence in the, the usefulness of the tools of spiritual formation and the scaffolding of belief that we personally hold. And I've just let go of that. You know, I, I think I first encountered, even that same time in college, vis-a-vis -vis Brennan Manning, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's idea of the discipline of the secret. It was his thought experiment where he said, what if Christians just closed our churches to the public for a decade and we stopped talking in public about our faith at all in the public square? When people even asked us, we maintained a respectful silence and we instead you know, re-examine the mysteries of our own faith and really dug in deep to uh, to see what what it is and what it means to us. And if and if people are persistent, if they really want to know, we can invite them. We can invite them in. And he was almost proposing like Christianity as a, a secret society, which would be problematic if you take it too far. I think Paul, the Apostle Paul, is very anti-mystery religion, if you look closely. Like, he talks about the mystery of Christ, but he talks about it being proclaimed. Uh, so, there, you know, Christianity is—I'm I'm a part of some secret societies, okay? But Christianity is not one of them, and I'm fine with that. But I do think there is something about letting go of the need for it to be popular. And I think the key of that can be found in Jesus' own teaching on salt. That, you know, salt— seasons a whole meal, but salt is not the whole meal. If we just had a big block of salt, we would be puckering and it really wouldn't be that enjoyable. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. There's even evidence, uh, linguistic, I would say, that when Paul talks about spreading Christianity throughout all the world, one, of course, he meant the world at his time that he knew about, because he, he even says at one point that the Great Commission has essentially been fulfilled. I define the chapter and verse, but he basically says the gospel has gone out into all the world. This has happened. But Paul considered a city to be evangelized when there was a church in that city. And in his time, a church was somewhere between, you know, 15 to 60 people. He did not have an imperialist, you know, for, for all the bad rap Paul gets these days, he did not have an imperialist idea of conversion, meaning 100% conformity of a populace to a particular set of propositions. He was talking about those who had eyes to see and those who had ears to hear and those who wished to embody this path of, of reconciling sacrificial love of God in Christ. And that the people who were on that path were on that path, and that their very presence was a salt and a light into the larger community, not through coercion. So, so for me, whenever I begin any question of what is the future of Christianity, I'm, I have pretty modest ideas in mind. I think of 
what kind of faith community do I want to be a part of? What kind of faith community hopefully won't turn off my own children too much as they, you know, come of age and they're able to choose something? And, and what kind of faith community would also impress itself upon sincere and interested and curious seekers who happen to come across it? It's not a continuation of cultural hegemony. I think that when Christians have held the reins of power, we did not do any better, much better than anyone else holding the reins of power. And while I am, you know, in a separate conversation, very interested in the, the, the future of humanity and how we choose to govern ourselves, and I hope that people of Christian faith have a role to play in that unfolding, I don't want us to be calling the shots anymore. And, you know, the, the, current, the last several years of our current administration is a, a very, so, should be a sobering example of what happens when people's vocabulary outpaces their heart and their consciousness and their hand of the reins of power, right? So all of that said, I think there is wonderful work being done in reclaiming structures and beliefs and practices that serve. I think that this very podcast, Encountering Silence, is a vital part of that. The work that you three do, the work, the people that you bring on the show, they, they have a lot to say about the interior elements of what this future can look like. I think there are others who have some wonderful things to say about what the, the exoteric, with the letter X, uh, expressions of, of church can look like. You know, my, my dear friend, uh, Alexander John Shia is actually someone who does a lot around this. He is passionate about what you could call liturgical reform. It's a very kind of snoozer of a way to describe it. But, you know, similar to how we've been in this conversation, mining the riches of the Trinity and how it could be possibly really reanimating, like, I'm currently participating in an online Easter retreat with, with Alexander, where he's going through the fruit of 40 years worth of, of research. And, you know, he's a, he's a Marianite Catholic by background who used to consult with the Vatican. Like, he knows what he's talking about. And he brings these wonderful little nuggets of, of praxis and beauty to the table. Like, check out this chant. Check out this particular way of being. And what's great is the pressure is off. I no longer have to care if other people out in the world are interested in this. What I can say is, man, this is a beautiful tool to form my own faith, which will hopefully form my own character and how I you know, go out and live in the world. And to me, that's the only genuinely evangelistic, attractive factor anyway. So that's, that's my response to the question about you know, the future of, of Christian community. And how that ties in to the work I do with relational skills and rewilder is, I guess, you know, about a decade ago, I had several really profound rite of passage kinds of experiences. I had just entered into my 30s and, you know, was questioning a lot of my, my, my outward life manifestation, who I was, going through my third life crisis, whatever. And I had a few profound experiences. One is with a group called the Mankind Project, and it was a, a, a men's rite of passage, like a male initiation, contemporary rite that was drawn from traditional and indigenous cultures with the permission of some representatives from those cultures, as well as a union understanding of the shadow, things we hide and deny and repress about our lives, whether those be things that we deem to be shameful or actually our, our golden shadow, the, the wonderful things that we nonetheless kind of hide our light under a bushel. And it's structured like a hero's journey kind of experience. And it was a, it was a beautiful thing. 
Another uh, weekend I did was called AMP, or the Authentic Man Program. And from the outside, it was a completely different kind of weekend. It was, uh, you know, it's a very, very much focused on, on heterosexual men. And it was either about, for the participants, being able to, quote unquote, get women <laughs> or have relationships with women. Or for those of us who already had relationships with our opposite sex partners, how to, how to deepen those, how to more fully show up in polarity and in masculinity. At least that was, that was the headline of, of the weekend. But the subtext of the weekend was how do we develop these relational skills? How can I have an increased understanding of my presence, my integrity, my being? And how can I let in my experience of you? How can I actually let in your subjective experience into my subjective experience? And how can I honor that and, and nurture that and provide space for that? And how can I draw boundaries when I don't need to be letting your energy in? So, you know, the thing that got a lot of guys to the door was, you know, how can I get the women? And but why we stayed, whether wherever we were in our, our relational journey is we were looking at these these skill developments and learning to show up in a more powerful way. So I struck up a, a friendship with one of the facilitators of, of my weekend in this. And I, I soon was staffing some of these same weekends and then soon leading uh, these game nights where we it was a much less uh, intense uh atmosphere where we have like an evening of, of connecting games for people uh, of any gender and any any motivation for being there. And we learned these simple practices of, you know, things ranging from eye gazing to using sentence stems to short circuit small talk and get to the meat of what we were really curious about, about each other. And so with my friend David Bolt, I continue to facilitate these relational skills gatherings and sometimes we do it in a, in a very explicitly Christian context as well. In fact, the exercises, some of the exercises at the back of the divine dance are directly uh, drawn from this relational skills context with Father Richard's blessing. He was like, look, Christianity has done solo contemplative practices really well through our lives, through our, our history, but we haven't necessarily developed these intersubjective contemplative and awareness practices that would logically follow from a Trinitarian idea of, of God as community, as God as this network of love. So, so that makes its way into the book and it makes its way into some of the facilitation work that I do. Uh, Rewilder is a collaborative project with another friend um, who goes by the name Rainier Wild. He is a, a men's coach with a therapist background. And, uh, and Rainier will be familiar to you know some of you who are at Wisdom Camp this past year at Wild Goose. We presented together. And it was basically what we were describing earlier, that the, the paradigm we're going at is what does um, what would happen if we put anthropology and archaeology and deep ecology in conversation with the best of spiritual um, practices and theology and biblical studies and stop pitting these things against each other and see how they might contribute to this wider story of who we are, where we came from, the, this, the predicament we're in now, and where we might be going in the future. And practically what we're wanting to do, and it's, you know, right now in these pandemic times, it's kind of fascinating to even think about, but the wide end of the funnel is we are also in the process of launching a podcast where we can have raw, unscripted dialogues with these thought leaders and hopefully bring their very specialized work into a more popular consciousness and a more popular appreciation. I, I call it like the raw bellification of uh, anthropology. That would be a, a lovely goal. And then that's the wide end of the funnel, just getting people thinking about these things. 
the kind of narrow end of the funnel is we're wanting to create these these immersive experiences. You know, you could call them retreats, I suppose, but where people have a, a reference experience, a taste of what it means to reconnect to spirit, self, other, and world. If if the you know predicament of civilization is that we feel alienated from spirit, self, other, and world, what does a reunion look like? And I think certainly our Christian tradition has wonderful things to say about that, as do many spiritual traditions. They also, though, are birthed out of the same alienation consciousness that our wider you know, context is. And so what, what we say is that oftentimes our spirituality contains a little bit of the poison along with the cure. And so it's a real act of discernment to see, you know, what of our what of our practices are, are helpful or, or harmful. Take, you know, take the ascetic Christian tradition of the passions, for instance. There's uh, one sense in which I think that the ascetics are right on, that we become overly given to either emotion or, or physicality or over, over, overly given to our, our exaltation of our mental processes. And we ought to hold those things loosely. And we ought to bring them to the, the feast of silence. We ought to bring them to you know, the, the, the community for discernment. But it can easily fall into an, a really unhealthy asceticism where you have, you know, op- Opus Dei literally self-flagellating to, uh, to sort of purify the flesh and this kind of hatred of the body and, and, and fear of the emotions that religion has a richly deserved, uh, deserved reputation for. Whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist, there's not too many people who are like, oh, man, those religious folks, they just love being embodied. <laughs> they just really have a deep sense of acceptance of who they are. <laughs> And so, you know, it's, it's about this, um, yeah, finding the, the really good stuff that is in the midst of the really harmful stuff and, and you know, moving forward together. And that's what we're, we're hoping to accomplish with Rewilder. Oftentimes we like to ask if you have a poem or a song or something you might like to share that's been on your mind and heart lately. But in addition to that, we love to ask if you have a silence hero, someone dead or alive, I know you've mentioned a few names already, uh, which might be pertinent to that answer. So, I'm, I'm imagining like a Saturday morning cartoon theme song right now. Silence hero. Yes. Yeah. And they like get up and then they're just like quiet, like a film, silent film star. Yeah, you need a stinger. They're dressed like Quakers. Quakers and monks. Silent hero. They're miming everything. Um, <laughs> sure. Well, you know, uh, one one silence hero that you know maybe doesn't get a lot of airtime on on your show would be someone I mentioned earlier, which who is uh, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. He might not be typically even thought of as a silence hero, but in his own fourth way path of incorporating, bringing increased aliveness and attentiveness to the body and to the emotions and to the mind through a variety of practices, including stillness practices and including some very dynamic practices, he would be an an unsung silence hero of mine in in some of his work. And if someone's particularly interested in exploring why there is a recently released book, and we could put the exact title in the show notes, I suppose, I forget um, what it is, but it's basically like Gershif, Gurdjieff uh, Contemplation, Spirituality, and Exercises by Joseph Aziz. And Aziz is a, a Marianite Catholic priest who is also a fourth-way work student and scholar of, of Gurdjieff. And he brings forward a lot of little-known 
um, exercises by, by Gurdjieff. And that was recently released by Oxford University Press. It's a very expensive academic book. So, so he would be a, a silence hero as well as an action hero <laughs> uh, for me. In terms of poetry, you know, I, I wish I were more of a poetry aficionado than I am. I feel like I've you know been way more into like the nonfiction side of things and then like comic books when I'm wanting to decompress. And so, you know, good poetry whops me upside the head, you know, from my teenage years onward, whether it's, you know, something really obvious like Edgar Allan Poe or or Rumi or David White or something. But I, I do always find a lot of uh, fascination in, in what my friends are doing. And so I, what I would like to share today is a, a poem by an old undergrad college friend of mine who is a, a very accomplished poet. And it's uh, someone that Carl also knows in, in the ATL, Simona. Simona. <laughs> yes, yeah, Simona Tetescu-Wyke. And this particular poem is called Secrets. And, and what you should know about uh, Simona, besides the fact that we went to college together, I'm sure that's a highlight of any of her biography reels, <laughs> is that she is a, um, she is a uh, first-generation Romanian immigrant uh, who came to the country when she was 14 years old. And she, you know, she's married, has kids, but she's a, a professor and a teacher of, of literature and of writing. So this is Secrets. Our days are filled with the aroma of peaches at the dinner table. My mother peels the skin, removes the hard shell of the seed, drops the amber globes into a blue bowl. The flesh of her fingers glistens. It is winter here in Oregon, rain frozen to the window, and my father in the other room is practicing Latin instead of English. To return, the simplicity of its nuances. A hard sound, a bark, my father says, by comparison. To conversio, a periodical return, or receptus, drawing back, recanting. And I think of the verbs he doesn't mention. Say, post liminum, the right to return home. And I remember our friends fleeing Romania encased in Italy-bound clothing trucks, or swimming the Danube corridor at nightfall. I know my father is also thinking of them, the secrets they kept, the way they scattered from our country like seeds, our living room map still marked with their locations. We're all ants under the interminable blue sky, our world. My father conjugates to the indifferent moon. In the kitchen, peaches sigh, come apart in the heat, and my mother sings in unison. She pours glasses of cold milk. In the absence of words, she brings music and silence as complicated as the geography of our past. She brings her hands smooth as olives, the scent of orchards where we played as children, the longing to make our new place familiar, to move inside its boundaries blindfolded, touching the walls, the furniture, like old friends. But our fingers and palms have betrayed us, the only recognition in the sweetness of peaches simmering, 
with sugar and cinnamon and that secret ingredient my mother won't give away, which I now know to be hunger itself. Mm. Wow, that closing line wraps it up really tightly. It, it does. And, and I, I chose this one in particular because of, in the absence of words, he brings music and silence mm. as complicated as the geography of our past. Mm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Mike, thank you so much. This has been a very um, thought-provoking conversation. I think we're we're all left with at least twenty different threads we could easily explore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we really we really appreciate your um your curious mind and your your heart for for not only truth but transformation and relationship. So thank you for for having me here. It's been an honor and happy to chat again anytime. Thanks so much, Mike, and so great to see you too. Yeah, likewise. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit Patreon.com forward slash Encountering Silence, to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.